Chapter Twelve of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Twelve. The sun had begun to cast long shadows the afternoon of Helen's hunt for Jonathan, when the borderman, accompanied by a Wetzel, led a string of horses along the base of the very mountain she had ascended. Last night's job was a good un. I ain't against saying, but the redskin I wanted got away. Wetzel said gloomily, "He's safe now as a squirrel in a hole." I saw him darting among the trees, with his white eagle feather sticking up like a buck's flag. Replied Jonathan, "He can run, if I'd only had my rifle loaded. But I'm not sure he was that arrow shooting Shawnee. It was him. I saw his bow." "'We ought to have taken more time and picked him out,' Wetzel replied, shaking his head gravely. "'Though maybe that had been useless. I think he was hiding. He's precious shy of his red skin. I've been after him these ten year and never catched him napping yet. We'd have done much toward snuffing out Leggett and his gang if we'd winged that Shawnee. He left the plain trail. One of his tricks, he's slicker on a trail than any other engine on the border.' Unless maybe it's old Wingenant, the Huron, this Shawnee'd lead us many a mile for nothing, if we'd stick to his trail. I'm long ago used to him. He's doubled like an old fox, run harder than a scared fawn, and if he needs be, he'll lay low as a cunning buck. I calculate once over the mountain, he's made a bee-line east. We'll go on with the hosses, and then strike across country to find his trail. It appears to me, Lou— that we've been taking a long time in making a show against these hoss-thieves, said Jonathan. I ain't saying much, but I've felt it, said Wetzel. All summer and nothing done. It was more luck than sense that we run into these engines with the hosses. We only got three out of four and let the best redskin give us the slip. Here fall is nigh on us with winter coming soon, and we still don't know who's the white trader in the settlement. I said it's be a long and maybe our last trail. Why? Because those fellers, red or white, are in with a picked gang of the best woodsmen as ever outlawed the border. We'll get the Fort Henry hoss thief. I'll back the bright-eyed lass for that. I haven't seen her lately, and allow she left word if she learned anything. Well, maybe it's as well you hain't seen so much of her. In silence they traveled, and, arriving at the edge of the meadow, were about to mount two of the horses when Wetzel said in a sharp tone, "'Look!' He pointed to a small, well-defined moccasin track in the black earth on the margin of a rill. "'Lou, it's a woman. Sure you're born,' declared Jonathan. Wetzel knelt and closely examined the footprint. "'Yes, a woman's, and no engine.' "'What?' Jonathan exclaimed as he knelt to scrutinize the imprint. "'This ain't half a day old,' added Wetzel. "'And not a redskin's moccasin near. What do you reckon?' "'A white girl alone,' replied Jonathan, as he followed the trail a short distance along the brook. "'See, she's making upland. Wetzel, these tracks could hardly be my sister's, and there's only one other girl on the border whose feet will match them. Helen Shepherd has passed here, on her way up the mountain to find you or me.' I like your reckoning. She's suddenly discovered something. Engines, hoss thieves, the Fort Henry trader, or maybe, and most likely some plotting. 
being bound to secrecy by me she's not told my brother and it must be called for hurry she knows we frequent this mountain top said eb told her about the way we get here i'd calculate about the same what'll you do go with me after asked jonathan i'll take the hosses and be at the fort inside an hour if helen's gone i'll tell her father you're close on her trail now listen it'll be dark soon and a storm's coming don't waste time on her trail hurry up to the rock she'll be there if any lass can climb there if not come back in the morning hunt her trail out and find her i'm thinking jack we'll find the shawnee had something to do with this whatever happens after i get back to the fort i'll expect you hard on my trail jonathan bounded across the brook with an easy lope began the gradual ascent soon he came upon a winding path he ran along this for perhaps a quarter of an hour until it became too steep for rapid traveling when he settled down to a rapid walk the forest was already dark a slight rustling of the leaves beneath his feet was the only sound except at long intervals the distant rumbling of thunder the mere possibility of helen's being alone on that mountain seeking him made jonathan's heart beat as it never had before for weeks he had avoided her almost forgot her he had conquered the strange yearning weakness which assailed him after that memorable sunday and once more the silent shaded glens the mystery of the woods the breath of his wild free life had claimed him but now as this evidence of her spirit her recklessness was before him and he remembered betty's avowal a pain which was almost physical tore at his heart how terrible it would be if she came to her death through him he pictured the big alluring eyes the perfect lips the haunting face cold in death and he shuddered the dim gloom of the woods soon darkened into blackness the flashes of lightning momentarily streaking the foliage or sweeping overhead in pale yellow sheets aided jonathan in keeping the trail he gained the plateau just as a great flash illuminated it and distinctly saw the dark hollow where he had taken refuge in many a storm and where he now hoped to find the girl picking his way carefully over the sharp loose stones he at last put his hand on the huge rock another blue-white dazzling flash enveloped the scene under the rock he saw a dark form huddled and a face as white as snow with wide horrified eyes lass he said when the thunder had rumbled away he received no answer and called again kneeling he groped about until touching helen's dress he spoke again but she did not reply jonathan crawled under the ledge beside the quiet figure he touched her hands they were very cold bending over he was relieved to hear her heart beating he called her name but still she made no reply dipping his hand into a little rill that ran beside the stone he bathed her face soon she stirred uneasily moaned and suddenly sat up tis jonathan he said quickly don't be scared another illumining flare of lightning brightened the plateau oh thank heaven cried helen i thought you were an indian Helen sank, trembling against the borderman, who enfolded her in his long arms. 
Her relief and thankfulness were so great that she could not speak. Her hands clasped and unclasped round his strong fingers. Her tears flowed freely. The storm broke with terrific fury. A seething torrent of rain and hail came with the rushing wind. Great heaven-broad sheets of lightning played across the black dome overhead. Zigzag ropes, steel-blue in color, shot downward. Crash and crack and boom, the thunder split and rolled the clouds above. The lightning flashes showed the fall of rain in columns like white waterfalls, borne on the irresistible wind. The grandeur of the storm awed and stilled Helen's emotion. She sat there watching the lightning, listening to the peals of thunder, and thrilling with the wonder of the situation. Gradually the roar abated. The flashes became less frequent. The thunder decreased. As the storm wore out its strength in passing, the wind and rain ceased on the mountaintop almost as quickly as they had begun, and the roar died away in the distance. Far to the eastward, flashes of light illuminated scowling clouds and brightened many a dark, wooded hill and valley. Lass, how is it I find you here? asked Jonathan gravely. With many a pause and broken phrase, Helen told the story of what she had seen and heard at the spring. Child, why didn't you go to my brother? asked Jonathan. You don't know what you undertook. I thought of everything but I wanted to find you myself. Besides, I was just as safe alone on this mountain as in the village." "'I don't know, but you're right,' replied Jonathan thoughtfully. "'So Brant planned to make off with you tomorrow?' "'Yes. And when I heard it, I wanted to run away from the village.' "'You've done a wondrous clever thing, lass. This Brant is a bad man and hard to match. But if he hasn't shaken Fort Henry by now, his career will end mighty sudden and his bad trail stops short on the hillside, among the graves, for Ebb will always give outlaws or engine decent burial. What will the colonel or anyone think has become of me? Wetzel knows, lass, for he found your trail below. Then he'll tell Papa you came after me? Oh, poor Papa, I forgot him. Shall we stay here till daylight? We'd gain nothing by starting now. The brooks are full, and in the dark we'd make little distance. You're dry here and comfortable. What's more, lass? You're safe. I feel perfectly safe with you, Helen said softly. Aren't you tired, lass? Tired? I'm nearly dead. My feet are cut and bruised, my wrist is sprained, and I ache all over. But, Jonathan, I don't care. I am so happy to have my wild venture turn out successfully. You can lie here and sleep while I keep watch. Jonathan made a move to withdraw his arm, which was still between Helen and the rock, but had dropped from her waist. I am very comfortable. I'll sit here with you, watching for daybreak. My, how dark it is. I cannot see my hand before my eyes. Helen settled herself back into the stone, leaned a very little against his shoulder, and tried to think over her adventure, but her mind refused to entertain any ideas except those of the present. Mingled with the dreamy lassitude that grew stronger every moment was a sense of delight in her situation. She was alone, 
on a wild mountain in the night with this borderman, the one she loved. By chance and her own foolhardiness this had come about, yet she was fortunate to have attained to some good beyond her own happiness. All she would suffer from her perilous climb would be aching bones and perhaps a scolding from her father. What she might gain was more than she had dared hope. Breaking up of the horse-thief gang would be a boon to the harassed settlement. How proudly Colonel Zane would smile! Her name would go on that long roll of border honor and heroism. That was not, however, one-thousandth part so pleasing as to be alone with her borderman. With a sigh of mingled weariness and content, Helen leaned her head on Jonathan's shoulder and fell asleep. The borderman trembled. The sudden nestling of her head against him, the light caress of her fragrant hair across his cheek, revived a sweet, almost conquered, almost forgotten emotion. He felt an inexplicable thrill vibrate through him. No untrodden, ambushed wild, no perilous trail, no dark and bloody encounter had ever made him feel fear as had the kiss of this maiden. He had sternly silenced faint, unfamiliar, yet tender voices whispering in his heart, and now his rigorous discipline was as if it were not, for at her touch he trembled. Still he did not move away. He knew she had succumbed to weariness and was fast asleep. He could, gently without awaking her, have laid her head upon the pillow of leaves. Indeed, he thought of doing it, but made no effort. A woman's head lying softly against him was a thing novel, strange, wonderful. For all the power he had then, each tumbling lock of her hair might as well have been a chain, linking him fast to the mountain. With the memory of his former yearning, unsatisfied moods, and the unrest and pain his awakening tenderness had caused him, came a determination to look things fairly in the face, to be just in thought towards this innocent, impulsive girl, and be honest with himself. Duty commanded that he resist all charm other than that pertaining to his life in the woods. Years ago he had accepted a borderman's destiny, well content to be recompensed by its untamed freedom from restraint, to be always under the trees he loved so well, to lend his cunning and woodcraft in the pioneer's cause, to haunt the savage trails, to live from day to day a menace to the foes of civilization. That was the life he had chosen. It was all he could ever have. In view of this, justice demanded that he allow no friendship to spring up between himself and this girl. If his sister's belief was really true, if Helen really was interested in him, it must be a romantic infatuation which, not encouraged, would wear itself out. What was he to win the love of any girl? An unlettered borderman who knew only the woods, whose life was hard and cruel, whose hands were red with Indian blood, whose vengeance had not spared men even of his own race. He could not believe she really loved him. Wildly impulsive as girls were at times, she had kissed him. She had been grateful, carried away by a generous feeling for him as the protector of her father. When she did not seem for a long time, as he vowed should be the case after he had carried her safely home, she would forget. Then honesty demanded 
that he probe his own feelings. Sternly, as if judging a renegade, he searched out in his simple way the truth. This big-eyed lass with her nameless charm would bewitch even a borderman unless he avoided her. So much he had not admitted until now. Love he had never believed could be possible for him. When she fell asleep, her hand had slipped from his arm to his fingers, and now rested there lightly as a leaf. The contact was delight. The gentle night breeze blew a tress of her hair across his lips. He trembled. Her rounded shoulder pressed against him until he could feel her slow, deep breathing. He almost held his own breath, lest he disturb her rest. No, he was no longer indifferent. As surely as those pale stars blinked far above, he knew the delight of a woman's presence. It moved him to study the emotion as he studied all things, which was the habit of his borderman's life. Did it come from knowledge of her beauty, matchless as that of the mountain laurel? He recalled the dark glance of her challenging eyes, her tall, supple figure, and the bewildering excitation and magnetism of her presence. Beauty was wonderful, but not everything. Beauty belonged to her, but she would have been irresistible without it. Was it not because she was a woman? That was the secret. She was a woman with all a woman's charm to bewitch to twine round the strength of men as the ivy encircles the oak, with all a woman's weakness to pity and to guard, with all a woman's willful burning love, and with all a woman's mystery. At last, so much of life was intelligible to him. The renegade committed his worst crimes because even in his outlawed homeless state he could not exist without the companionship, if not the love of a woman. The pioneer's toil and privation were for a woman, and the joy of loving her and living for her, the Indian brave, when not on the warpath, walked hand in hand with a dusky, soft-eyed maiden, and sang to her of moonlit lakes and western winds. Even the birds and beasts mated. The robins returned to their old nests, the eagles paired once, and were constant in life and death. The buck followed the doe through the forest. All nature sang that love made life worth living. Love, then, was everything. The borderman sat out the long vigil of the night, watching the stars and trying to decide that love was not for him. If Wetzel had locked a secret within his breast and never in all those years spoke of it to his companion, then surely that companion could as well live without love. Stern, dark, deadly work must and blot all tenderness from his life, else it would be unutterably barren. The joy of living, of unharassed freedom, he had always known. If a fair face and dark mournful eyes were to haunt him on every lonely trail, then it were better an Indian should end his existence. The darkest hour before dawn, as well as the darkest of doubt and longing in Jonathan's life, passed away. A gray gloom obscured the pale, winking stars. The east slowly whitened, then brightened, and at length day broke, misty and fresh. The borderman rose to stretch his cramped limbs. When he turned to the little cavern, the girl's eyes were wide open. All the darkness, the shadow, the beauty, and the thought of the past night, 
lay in their blue depths. He looked away across the valley, where the sky was reddening, and a pale rim of gold appeared above the hilltops. "'Well, if I haven't been asleep!' exclaimed Helen, with a low, soft laugh. "'You're rested?' I hope, said Jonathan, with averted eyes. He dared not look at her. Oh, yes, indeed. I am ready to start at once. How gray, how beautiful the morning is. Shall we be long? I hope Papa knows. In silence, the borderman led the way across the rocky plateau and into the winding, narrow trail. His pale, slightly drawn and stern face did not invite conversation. Therefore Helen followed silently in his footsteps. The way was steep, and at times he was forced to lend her aid. She put her hand in his and jumped lightly as a fawn. Presently a brawling brook, overcrowding its banks, impeded further progress. "'I'll have to carry you across,' said Jonathan. "'I'm very heavy,' replied Helen, with a smile in her eyes. She flushed as the borderman put his right arm around her waist. Then a clasp as of steel enclosed her. She felt herself swinging easily into the air and over the muddy brook. Further down the mountain, this troublesome brook again crossed the trail, this time much wider and more formidable. Helen looked with some vexation and embarrassment into the borderman's face. It was always the same, stern, almost cold. "'Perhaps I'd better wade,' she said hesitantly. "'Why?' The water's deep and cold. You'd better not get wet. Helen flushed, but did not answer. With downcast eyes, she let herself be carried on his powerful arm. The waiting was difficult this time. The water foamed furiously around his knees. Once he slipped on a stone and nearly lost his balance. Uttering a little scream, Helen grasped at him wildly, and her arm encircled his neck. What was still more trying, when he put her on her feet again, it was found that her hair had become entangled in the porcupine quills on his hunting coat. She stood before him while, with clumsy fingers, he endeavored to untangle the shimmering strands, but in vain. Helen unwound the snarl of wavy hair. Most alluring she was then, with a certain softness on her face, and light and laughter, and something warm in her eyes. The borderman felt that he breathed a subtle exhilaration, which emanated from her glowing, gracious beauty. She radiated with the gladness of life, with an uncontrollable sweetness and joy, but giving no token of his feeling, he turned to march on down through the woods. From this point the trail broadened, descending at an easier angle. Jonathan's stride lengthened until Helen was forced to walk rapidly and sometimes run in order to keep close behind him. A quick journey home was expedient, and in order to accomplish this, she would gladly have exerted herself to a greater extent. When they reached the end of the trail, where the forest opened clear of brush, finally to merge into the broad, verdant plain, the sun had chased the mist clouds from the eastern hilltops and was gloriously brightening the valley. With a touch of sentiment natural to her, Helen gazed backward for one more view of the mountain top, the wall of rugged rock she had so often admired from her window at home, which henceforth would ever hold a tender place of remembrance in her heart, rose out of a gray blue bank of mist. The long, swelling slope lay clear to the sunshine, with the rays of sun gleaming and glistening upon the variegated foliage, and upon the shiny, rolling haze above, a beautiful picture of autumn splendor was before her. 
Tall pines here and there towered high and lonely over the surrounding trees. Their dark green, graceful heads stood in bold relief above the gold and yellow crests beneath. Maples tinged from faintest pink to deepest rose added warm color to the scene, and chestnuts with their brown-white burrs lent fresher beauty to the undulating slope. The remaining distance to the settlement was short. Jonathan spoke only once to Helen, then questioning her as to where she had left her canoe. They traversed the meadow, found the boat in a thicket of willows, and were soon under the frowning bluff of Fort Henry. Ascending the steep path, they followed the road leading to Colonel Zane's cabin. A crowd of boys, men, and women loitering near the bluff arrested Helen's attention. Struck by this unusual occurrence, she wondered what was the cause of such idleness among the busy pioneer people. They were standing in little groups. Some made vehement gestures, others conversed earnestly, and yet more were silent. On seeing Jonathan, a number shouted and pointed toward the inn. The bordermen hurried Helen along the path, giving no heed to the throng. But Helen had seen the cause of all this excitement. At first glance she thought Metzer's inn had been burned, but a second later it could be seen that the smoke came from a smoldering heap of rubbish in the road. The inn, nevertheless, had been wrecked. Windows stared with that vacantness peculiar to deserted houses. The doors were broken from their hinges. A pile of furniture, rude tables, chairs, beds, and other articles were heaped beside the smoking rubbish. Scattered around lay barrels and kegs, all with gaping sides and broken heads. Liquor had stained the road, where it had been soaked up by the thirsty dust. Upon a shattered cellar door lay a figure, covered with a piece of rag carpet. When Helen's quick eyes took in this last, she turned away in horror. That motionless form might be Brant's. Remorse and womanly sympathy surged over her, for bad as the man had shown himself, he had loved her. She followed the borderman, trying to compose herself. As they neared Colonel Zane's cabin, she saw her father, Will, the Colonel, Betty, Nell, Mrs. Zane, Silas Zane, and others whom she did not recognize. They were all looking at her. Helen's throat swelled and her eyes filled when she got near enough to see her father's haggard, eager face. The others were grave. She wondered guiltily if she had done much wrong. In another moment she was among them. Tears fell as her father extended his trembling hands to clasp her, and as she hid her burning face in his breast, he cried, My dear, dear child. Then Betty gave her a great hug, and Nell flew about them like a happy bird. Colonel Zane's face was pale, and wore a clouded stern expression. She smiled timidly at him through her tears. "'Well, well, well,' he mused, while his gaze softened. That was all he said, but he took her hand and held it while he turned to Jonathan. The borderman leaned on his long rifle, regarding him with expectant eyes. "'Well, Jack, you missed a little scrimmage this morning. Wetzel got in at daybreak. The storm and horses held him up on the other side of the river until daylight.' He told me of your suspicions with the additional news that he'd found a fresh Indian trail on the island just across from the inn. We went down, not expecting to find anyone awake. But Metzer was hurriedly packing some of his traps. Half a dozen men were there, having probably stayed all night. 
That little English cuss was one of them, and another, an ugly fellow, a stranger to us, but evidently a woodsman. Things looked bad. Metzer told a decidedly conflicting story. Wetzel and I went outside to talk over the situation, with the result that I ordered him to clean out the place. Here Colonel Zane paused to indulge in a grim, meaning laugh. Oh, well, he cleaned out the place all right. The ugly stranger got rattlesnake mad and yanked out a big knife. Sam is hitching up the team now to haul what's left of him up on the hillside. Metzer resisted arrest and got badly hurt. He's in the guardhouse. Case, who has been drunk for a week, got in Wetzel's way and was kicked into the middle of next week. He's been spitting blood for the last hour, but I guess he's not much hurt. Brant flew the coop last night. Wetzel found this hid in his room. Colonel Zane took a long feathered arrow from where it lay on a bench and held it out to Jonathan. The Shawnee signal. Wetzel had it right, muttered the borderman. Exactly. Lou found where the arrow stuck in the wall of Brant's room. It was shot from the island at the exact spot where Lou came to an end of the Indian's trail in the water. That Shawnee got away from us. So Lou said. Well, he's gone now. So has Brandt. We're rid of the gang. If only we never hear from them again. The borderman shook his head. During the colonel's recital his face changed. The dark eyes had become deadly. The square jaw was shut. The lines of the cheek had grown tense, and over his usually expressive countenance had settled a chill, lowering shade. Lou thinks Brant's in with Bing-Legged. Well, dang his black traitor heart. He's a good man for the worst and strongest gang that ever tracked the border. The borderman was silent, but the fugitive, restless shifting of his eyes over the river and island, hill and valley, spoke more plainly than words. "'You're to take his trail at once,' added Colonel Zane. "'I had best put you up some bread, meat, and parched corn. No doubt you'll have a long, hard tramp. Good luck.' The borderman went into the cabin, presently emerging with a buckskin knapsack strapped to his shoulder. He set off eastward, with a long, swinging stride. The women had taken Helen within the house, where no doubt they could discuss with greater freedom the events of the previous day. "'Shepard,' said Colonel Zane, turning with the sparkle in his eyes, "'Brant was after Helen, sure as bad weed grows fast, and certain as death, Jonathan and Wetzel, will see him cold and quiet back in the woods. That's a border saying, and it means a good deal. I never saw Wetzel so implacable nor Jonathan so fatally cold but once. And that was when Miller, another traitor much like Brandt, tried to make away with Betty. It would have chilled your blood to see Wetzel go at that fool this morning. Why did he want to pull a knife on the borderman? It was a sad sight. Well, these things are justifiable. We must protect ourselves, and above all our women. We've had bad men, and a bad man out here is something you cannot yet appreciate. Come here and slip into the life of the settlement. Because on the border you can never tell what a man is until he proves himself. There have been scores of criminals spread over the frontier, and some better men like Simon Gertie, who were driven to outlaw life. 
Simon must not be confounded with Jim Gertie, absolutely the most fiendish desperado who ever lived. Why, even the Indians feared Jim so much that after his death his skeleton remained unmolested in the glade where he was killed. The place is believed to be haunted now by all Indians and many white hunters, and I believe the bones stand there yet. Stand? asked Shepard, deeply interested. Yes, it stands where Gertie stood and died, upright against a tree, pinned, pinned there by a big knife. Heavens, man, who did it? Shepard cried in horror. Again Colonel Zane's laugh, almost metallic, broke grimly from his lips. <laughs> who? Why, Wetzel, of course. Lou hunted Jim Gertie five long years. When he caught him? God, I'll tell you some other time. Jonathan saw Wetzel handle Jim and his pal, Deering, as they were mere boys. Well, as I said, the border has had, and still has, its bad men. Simon Gertie took McKee and Elliot, the Tories, from Fort Pitt, when he deserted, and ten men beside. They're all, except those who are dead, outlaws of the worst type. The other bad men drifted out here from Lord only knows where. They're scattered all over. Simon Gertie, since his crowning black deed, the massacre of the Christian Indians, is in hiding. Bing Leggett now has the field. He's a hard nut, a cunning woodsman, and capable leader who surrounds himself with only the most desperate Indians and renegades. Brant is an agent of Leggett's and... I'll bet we'll hear from him again. End of chapter 12